And it, what's interesting is even after Christianity comes to Anglo-Saxon England in around 597, it doesn't obliterate this heroic identity. It doesn't obliterate the heroic stories. It's sort of pulling at your sleeve, the poet saying, look here, here's another place where we see that this tradition is, is right. And so he's saying these these people, they, they God was there too. God was ordaining and directing and approving and condemning there too. Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we're in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason. Then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from, and what comes next? Let's chat. My guest today is Peter Ramey who's an old friend. Pete and I go way back. I think we met on our very first day of freshman orientation at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. And Pete is now a full professor of English at Northern State University in Aberdeen, South Dakota, and the translator and editor of The Word Horde Beowulf, a new translation with commentary of the old English poem Beowulf. And even though we don't usually on the Beatrice Institute podcast base the interview around a a new book, that's really appropriate, uh, especially in this genealogies of modernity thread, because Beowulf is more than just a book. It's an entire, opens onto an entire universe and and really a, a very fascinating and alien culture that spans uh, really close to a thousand years of uh, European history and has a fascinating poetic legacy and historical legacy. So he is here to talk with us about that entire world and his really innovative translation that we'll get into a little bit. So Pete, welcome. Oh, so glad to be here. Great to talk with you, Ryan. So there, I would say there are two main characteristics that set your translation apart from other existing translations. And we'll get to both of those. The first is that it takes seriously the poem's Christianity as integral to Beowulf and not just a kind of tacked on or secondary overlay that came about in the writing process. So your picture is of an author who's taking oral material and integrating it with Christian culture. Um, So there's that aspect. And then there's the translation aspect where you actually give us a large quantity of Old English vocabulary and integrate that into the poem, and you're kind of teaching us along the way how to understand those words. If you were to translate a gospel, a Bible, you know, a part of the New Testament from the Greek using the same method, what words would you retain from the Greek? Just to give people a sense of, you know, a text they might already know pretty well. Yeah, I mean, Evangelium, you know, the good news, the gospel would be an example of a word that it's, we know. I mean, the the phrase good news doesn't mean anything unless it's in the context of the New Testament. So that's an example of a term that's been acculturated. So we get it now, but at first you wouldn't get the sense of, so that'd be maybe an an example of one thing. Um, You know, but all the critical concepts, um, the Trinity, in fact, in Old English, there's a cool word, threeness, for the Trinity. Before it was replaced by Trinitas in Latin, um, there was, they had to create words because there was no vocabulary for this. So that's maybe the the example that comes to mind with the New Testament. But language and and values and concepts come packaged together, don't they? And um, that's a great question. And yeah, that's interesting. So partly you're just carrying over the old English vocabulary, but partly you're also creating words because you discussed this in your Mm -hmm. introduction that in some ways you're, for example, adding the S to make nouns plural in the modern English manner, 
where that wouldn't be the case in, That's right. in the original. Could you then give us some examples of keywords that, that you carry over here that you think are important for us to understand? Yeah, and terms for God maybe are where I would start. Um, the terms for God are expansive and linked to the terms for king, kingship as well. God is a king and the terms for kingship are expansive and they, and they overlap. But an example of one that doesn't overlap um, the term for God that isn't used for kings is metod. That's M-E-T-O-D, or sometimes it's spelled M-E-O-T-O-D, depending on which dialect of Old English. And um, it's related to the word meet out, like you meet out um, a punishment today that's related to it. And um, the metod is the ordainer, is the um, the one who meets out fate, who um, allots fate. And it probably was a term that pre-existed Christianity, but was adopted by the poet and other poets as God, because God is the one who's going to mete out fate, who's going to um, going to ordain all things. And it's it's an important term in Beowulf. It's used all throughout Beowulf. And Beowulf, the Beowulf poet's going to underscore that, that God, not fate, is in control of all things. He's got, even, even allowing the depredations of Grendel, um, God is in control. And, and so he's, that's, and that's fundamental. So the term is really important because we don't have, I get, most translators use providence to translate that term. But providence sort of sounds like a, doesn't quite capture it, does it? Um, it's it's hard a to... deist. It's a deist term, right? It's like 18th century, right? <laughs> yeah, or, or yeah, or yeah, early some of the early pilgrims, right? Providence, Rhode Island. Um, but um, but it just it's it not, doesn't fit the mentality of um, the text. So that's one example of of um, terms for dating. And there's just a plethora of these terms. I think it'll be helpful just to kind of do the kind of thing that you and I do, and when we're first teaching Beowulf in a survey class. Just to give our listeners who might not be familiar with it some sense of the interface between oral culture and the written culture in which Beowulf comes down to us. And in fact, I meant to mention in the introduction that Pete is the the co-author with John Miles Foley of this really excellent article, Oral Theory and Medieval Literature, that I've learned a great deal from um, and that I... I recommend. But yeah, so so what's the oral history of Beowulf and then how does it come into writing? It's a vexed question and it's continually being revised. But it, Beowulf and the narrative um, heroic verse that's that's linked to Beowulf is comes out of an oral tradition. And it's an oral tradition that's inherited from the the migrations from the mainland. So um the the Anglo-Saxons, Jutes, the Frisians who came over they had stories, uh, and these stories were rooted in uh, migration age heroes. So heroes of the migration age. So, so these are figures like Helok, Beowulf has said in this. This is the time period of the poem. It was kind of like the Wild West for Anglo-Saxons. This is the time uh, when things were kind of chaotic and Germanic peoples were on the move. And this was the time of heroes. Um, it was a, a violent time, upheaval, destruction. And yet this is also the glory days. So they carried with them an oral tradition of these stories, and these stories are going to figure into everything that happens as they, and it's a source of identity. And it, what's interesting is even after Christianity comes to Anglo-Saxon England in around 597, it doesn't obliterate this heroic identity. It doesn't obliterate the heroic stories. Kings are still going to um, have hero, these, these migration age heroes in their, their lineages, even Woden makes an appearance in some of the different dynastic um, lineages, the royal genealogies. So it's important to identity, and these stories continue to be retold. And the Anglo-Saxon names, too. Um, Old English names continue to be heroic, and they're not replaced by saints' names or biblical names. So this is a source of identity, and, and this oral tradition would have continued. So I think one of the most famous works of early English poetry is Cadman's Hymn, and we get this from Bede's Ecclesiastical History. Cadman is a, is a shepherd living on the, uh, or cowherd li living on the fringes of a monastic community. And he, an angel appears to him and, and tells him he needs to join in the, the singing of songs at the feast. And so give us a sense of what that means. Like, what is that setting? And, and, and this is, um, this is eighth century, right? Uh, um, no, this would be probably late 600s. Um, so late 600s, that, seven, yeah. seventh century. Okay. Yep. What is it that the angel wants Cadman to join into? 
you know, so Catman, um, like so many of us can't think of, he gets um, stage fright every time the harp is passed to him. And so the angel comes after he's run off. And so famous, famous story. But Cadman um, has stage fright, runs home to his little little hovel, and he's, he's cowering there in fear. And an angel comes and says, sing for me. And Cadman says, what shall I sing? And the angel says, sing the creation of all things. And then his lips are open and he can recite it, but he only sings sacred verse. Um, so the we can presume there were some body songs, you know, being as things were passed around as the as the as the mead was being quaffed. But Cadman's going to going to simply going to sing of holy things, and all of his verse, B tells us, was versions of scripture. He would take and adapt scripture, and so Cadman's hymn, just the little nine lines we have, are a paraphrase, a poetic paraphrase of Genesis one, where where God creates all things. And can you recite that for us? Oh, I. New Shulon Harian heaven reaches where Mayo Torres Mac on his mold, you think, where Gould's our father. Um, the rest of it starts to sort of yeah, slip away. Sure. Um, but that, there's that key word that you, that you brought up, that, that name for God, Mayo Torres um, Mac. Yeah, um, the, the might of the ordainer, right. And so he's taking this, this word this, and, and this deity who already exists, right, in the Germanic culture, and Christianizing it yeah, in a way, of, right? Yeah, and I wouldn't say it was a deity. Um, I would say it was okay. It, it most well, we don't really know. Everything written is post-Christian because Christians brought writing. Uh, the runic alphabet was used just for some inscriptions for really short statements, and so we don't know what Meotod meant. But we can tell from, for example, the use in Norse too, where the cognate is formed, that it probably meant something like fit, "your fated death" or. or you know, meotod shaft is is your death um, when you're ordained to die. So it probably meant something like that. Maybe a force, or maybe a personalized force that that was your fate. But God is going to replace that. God, not fate, just decides when you die. Um, but it becomes to me it means much more than that in Old English verse. It doesn't just mean your fated death. It, it also just means the one who is in, in control, governing all things. So in Cadman's hymn, it's it's the the might of the meotod, the power, the ordaining power of God. He's creating all things, and and it's it's deliberate. It's not random. It's not cruel fate. It's beautiful and ordered. And so Cadman is replacing this earlier conception with this beautiful conception of God's majestic and ordered creation, like an ornament, like an artifact, beautiful, meaningful, lovely. And so at this feast that Cadman would have joined, is it possible that they would be singing of Beowulf historically or or some of the other material that we find in Beowulf, some of that, that cycle, heroic cycle material? Yeah. So Beowulf, we don't know if Beowulf... Beowulf was probably a folklore hero, maybe a really minor hero known for his prodigious strength that the Beowulf poet took, perhaps as part of his, his agenda, his theological agenda, and recast with a greater role as a monster fighter and set him within the heroic narratives. We don't know what his... Nobody else mentions Beowulf. Beowulf is not known in the surviving sources, where we have many other other heroes that are mentioned other places. There, are, there is a monk, and many many yeah. heroes in the in the poem Beowulf that that's are mentioned right. other places, right? But tons no, of them are no Beowulf, tons, yeah. but no yeah. Beowulf. So he, that's a question mark right there. But yeah, I think your question, Ryan, is that would they be singing the, the songs that are featured, the stories, the the inset nar- narratives featured in Beowulf? Yeah, that's right. They would have known these and recited these um, most likely. I will say everything in Beowulf and everything in Old English studies is is disputed. And there's a school that wants to say that there was no oral tradition. There was no, these, these legends weren't known to people, that they were imported late, that it's about the Viking, it's a Viking age thing. You know, we're talking 800s, 900s, and that basically Beowulf is a fantasy. It's fan fiction. <laughs> and this is a very flimsy argument, but there's a lot of people that really want this to be true. And it fits with different ideological agendas. But the, the cons- if there's more of a consensus that's forming today, it's that Beowulf is early, and then it's drawing on these, these traditions that were widely known. And they're widely known because we see them other places, other poems, um, in genealogies, on the continent. So it seems quite clear that however complicated this, this process actually was, that this was Beowulf um, and the stories in Beowulf are early and they're oral traditional. So we've got, we have a couple of scenes of uh, of poetry at the feast, and one of those, I'm wondering if you could you could read from your translation, uh, line eight sixty, line eight sixty eight on page sixty eight, and this is, you know, at beginning with at times the king's thane. Can can you read that section and then, and then explain what we should be understanding is going on here? 
Sure. At times the king's thane, a yelp-laden man, mindful of yids, one who remembered a great many of the old stories, a vast number, found other words bound truly together. The man began again to recite Beowulf's Sith with skill, to fluently perform a ready tale, varying his words. I'll maybe pause there. It goes on and says that he, he particular tales, he tells the, the story of Siamon, for example. But this is somebody who, um, and, and so what's this a picture of? Um, these are men that are that are um, riding horseback. Beowulf has just had a great victory and they're exulting. And the picture here, which is going to be um, you know, somewhat mannered, this is a poetic representation. This isn't an ethnographic account by any means, right? Um just like heroes are larger than life, this is going to be maybe an idealized picture of performance. But I think at, at its root, this is this is um, accurate. And that is somebody that knows stories, that's observed stories. Just like you know people that tell jokes really good and that everywhere they go, they like absorb new jokes. And they're just funny at telling jokes. And you just want to be around them. And somehow you can tell the same joke and it would be flat and dumb. And someone else is going to tell and it's going to be hilarious. Some people were gifted reciters. And there seemed to be people that had a special role called a shope. Uh, and it was their job to perform. But it was probably a skill that was available to many people because Hrothgar, the king of the Danes, is also portrayed as performing poetry skillfully. So here's somebody, they're riding horseback, and to pass the time and to celebrate this victory, this man is able to take old material and make it new. He's able to tell the story of Beowulf on the pattern of stories of old, like Siamund, the dragon slayer. And there's that key word that I... that. I think Seamus Haney even translates as interlace, drawing on John Lyerly's work on interlace. Uh, which word is that? Didn't oh, come. yeah. found uh, And then 870 to 71, found other words bound truly together. That binding together. Can you tell us a little bit about how the binding together works, both as image and as literary method? Yeah, in, in especially in oral tradition, it's always every performance is new and it's also old. And it's old in the pattern. So you've got ready-made formulas like Beowulf made a speech, Beowulf mathled as I have it. So um, Beowulf uh, madaloda to made a formal utterance. And that's just a formula. So that just repeats throughout. But much of the poetry takes takes a phrase and then does something new with it. Um, so it's in part, it's formulaic. And then it's also varied through alliteration. So remember, old English poetry uses the technique of alliteration to yoke different ideas together. And skillful poets could take all the different terms for warrior, for king, for ship, for anything that's important in Old English is going to have a storehouse of synonyms for it because you can slot it in in different places and you can vary your words. Rixlan, exchange, continually um, multiply your words. And Cadman's Hemp, too, is a great example where Cadman says sort of essentially the same few ideas over and over, but it's a way to sort of glory in something, isn't it? To say it in different ways with different facets, to play it up, to celebrate it. Um, to keep the idea suspended in the air while recasting it with different language. And that's what this, this poet is doing here. They're, t- they're telling stories, but they're altering the, the language using formulas and synonyms. So at the, at the line level and at the level of diction, there is this exchange, this kind of mixing and matching that goes on. And then also in this episode, we find the Shope taking the Beowulf material which is news, which is live, which has just happened, and interweaving it with older heroic tales, right? Um, so there's also on the the kind of the plot level, the level of of matter, there's an interlace going on. Could you also then just say a bit about the current state of the comparison of that literary method to the interlace patterns that we see in the art? Yeah, let's see here. Um... Ryan, what do you give me an example of kind of what, where you're going with this? What do you are you talking about? What what art what art in particular would you s- so like in interlace patterns in uh, say the Book of Kells, where most most famously where we you know if if if, if anybody says uh, Celtic patterns, this is what comes to mind. You know, you've got long snakes that are intertwined, often in these impossible infinities where the, the the snake's head is eating its tail and there's all this intertwining and those those kinds of patterns i think every everybody listening will will have some sense of those images yeah so the the beowulf is woven through um to use the interlace metaphor that john Lairley um made so famous it's woven through with different narratives kind of like a, a quilt a tapestry 
And then the language too is interwoven out. So on the level of line, you know, of um, section of, of verse, you have it interwoven with different synonyms and different um, verbs. And it would be wrong to look at these lines and, and study them for what it, just what on the level of line, for example, you're going you're to miss out on the larger patterns. Or if you just zero in on a single story, inset story, because Beowulf, one of the odd things, and the things that no scholar has completely solved is the presence of so many little, sometimes they're called digressions, inset stories. And there's just, it's just full of these stories in the background. There's the foreground with where Beowulf is fighting the monsters. But then continually, the poet turns to these backstories, these digressions about other heroes, older heroes. And um, the presence of those can be argued that, and, and so this is an example, again, of interlace, where the main narrative is being continually interwoven with these sub-narratives, these inset stories, like Siegemann here, the dragon slayer. And what's the function of these? Um, they certainly make the poem beautiful, they add variety, they're interesting, but there's a mystery about what the function of these. Some of them seem to have nothing relevant to the main text. And so, but they're certainly part of this, this interlace pattern. And maybe there's things about these elusive moments that we no longer understand and would make sense if we did, but we don't have that traditional background. I've asked you to prepare a couple of passages uh, where we can hear the Old English, then hear your translation and get some sense of your method. Where would you want to take us first? Well, I couldn't choose on just one. Sure. So I, I picked, well, great. More than one. Pick two. So um, one is the creation story. So um, after King Hrothgar, he consolidates an army, he gets power. And the first thing he does is he's going to build a hall, the greatest hall that's ever been known, kind of a city on a hill. And then what does he do? Well, inside of it, he distributes gold, of course. That's what you do. And they drink mead and then they sing. The poet performs and he sings the creation hymn. Um, so that's one passage that I wanted to read. Um, and it's the it's the song of the Shope that reciting in Herat that upsets Grendel so much. So I'm on page, it's on page 27, line 85. Okay, here's the old English. Um, Tha se elengast erfoth liche, thragitholada, se they in thrustumbad, that he dogora yuhuam, dram yahirda. There was herpen sway, sang shopas, seyede seyede kude, from shaft fira feran rechan, quath that seyan mitia, erthan werta, wulit bjort ne wong, swa water babuget, yeset siya hreti, sunan on monan, lamon to lechta, land buendum, and ye fratwada, foldan shiatas, Leomum on lefum, leaf erk yeshelp, kuna yowilchum, tharathe quiche huerva. Okay, that didn't mean much to many people, but here's my translation. And maybe, Ryan, could you hear anything that sounded like English? No. <laughs> okay, here's, here's my rendering, and it goes this way. Then the Elengas suffered grievously for a time, he who dwelled in darkness, for each day he heard the dram. Loud in the hall, where the harp's sound was, the shope's clear song. He spoke the one who could recount the beginning of men from far back. He said that the Almighty wrought the earth, the bright shining plain which water encircles. Exulting, he set sun and moon, gleams as a light for land dwellers, and adorned the earth's surface with limbs and leaves. He also created life in every creature that quickens and worms. So that one, you, it's going to have some unfamiliar stuff, but, um, but the language is mostly going to be straightforward apart from special vocabulary. And so what do you, you know, what's the principle there? What, what are you trying to do as you translate this passage? So some of the things that, um, that my, my translation is going to um, retain from the Old English would be the mostly no nouns, so elengast. So what is an elengast? So Ellen means like bold, reckless, daring. And gast, well, it's a source of ghost, but it's not a ghost. Obviously, Grendel's not a ghost. It means us. It can be. It can mean spirit. It can also mean demon, and that's maybe. A tra I think that's what a lot of translators do here. The bold demon, I think, is Seamus Haney's, but the bold demon isn't quite right either. So, ghast is is a creature, is a living being of some kind, but and it has a, a whole range of possibilities um, from demon to ghost. It can even mean breath. And then Ellen also doesn't have a straightforward, simple way. So I've just retained a, a term like that, and then I gloss it below. And I also have it in the glossary at the end of the book. 
So that's Grendel, and that's a term that designates Grendel, the Elengast. And then we have the Shope. That's a term. We, we could use minstrel, but that is a Shope is a particular kind of, of oral poet that's distinctive to the old English color, um, culture. So there isn't an easy um, poet, singer, minstrel. And then I also included terms, a verb here, um, werves. Werfan um, in old English is a term that means to turn about, to move, has a sense of, a sense of turning. And so we, I guess you could, there's no, no simple modern English equivalent. So I took this one, in this case, just reintroduced it. Most of the words I have to say in, in my translation are extant. Maybe they're later forms, post-medieval forms. Most of them I take directly from old English. So I just take the form and keep, retain it. In some cases, I'll introduce a later form. In this case, Werv, it, it just died out. So I reintroduced it. Well, and it, it sounds like what it means, maybe because <laughs> of the modern English swerve, which has that sense of turn or curve, or it rhymes with curve. Um, yeah. So one of the things that I just was really struck by in your translation is how vivid and clear it is to me in modern English. Even more more so, I find, than Seamus Haney's, which is the translation I know best, because and it's probably the translation that our listeners have read, if they've read Beowulf, because it's what's included. I mean, it's, it's the translation that that would, would be quoted in the AP English exam. So if you took AP English and you encountered Beowulf, it would have been Seamus Haney's translation. If you encountered Beowulf in college, it's the translation that's in the Norton Anthology. And just a, you know, noble laureate, wonderful, magnificent Irish poet Seamus Haney doing some really remarkable things with Irish, the Irish language and the Irish culture, and working through the very real and present danger of blood feud in, in modern Irish society through this poem. Really brilliant. His introduction is brilliant. It's the work of a poet, but but it's a very Irish translation and a very modern translation that absorbs absorbs much of the mid-20th century scholarship that was establishing a, a pre-Christian pagan Beowulf that's right. where, that's with right. a veneer of Christianity. That's what Haney gives us. So there's Haney, and on the one hand, the best known. Then there's there's also this remarkable translation, uh, 19th century translation, by the founder of the arts and crafts movement, William Morris, who decided that he was going to make a kind of library of England, all of the great literature that English people should know. And when necessary, he was going to translate it if it was in <laughs> old, old English, but he really wanted it to be old. And so his translation of Beowulf I mean, I've heard scholars sort of tongue-in-cheek say that that uh, it's it's easier to read it in the Old English than it is to read it in William Morris's <laughs> translation. Uh, but I, I wanted to just read that same passage that that you had um, just now from Morris's translation and then comment on that a little bit. Then the ghost, heavy, strong, bore with it hardly in for a while of time, biter in darkness, that there on each day of days heard he the mirth tide loud in the hall house. There was the harp's voice and clear song of shaper, said he who could it to tell the first fashion of men from aforetime, quoth how the Almighty One made the earth's fashion, and the fair field and bright midst the bow of the waters, and with victory begloried set sun and moon, bright beams to enlighten the biters on land, and how he adorned all parts of the earth with limbs and with leaves, and life withal shaped for the kindred of each thing that quick on earth wended, wendeth. Mm. <laughs> yeah. It's it's very, I mean, he's pulling up in so much Middle English. Um, so he, he's not really carrying over the Old English as much as he's, as he's using Middle English diction and Middle English filler words, often drawn into my ear, not from Middle English itself, but from Mallory. I think he, I think he's taking Mallory's more to Arthur, and which is itself this kind of intentionally archaizing form, maybe some Edmund Spencer there too, and yeah, just and trying too. to, yeah. And, and later? Yeah, late, okay. later yeah, poets. Tell us about um, it. You know, um, border ballads, you know, even Victorian poetry keeps, it's a, it's, a, it's a very archaic form, and it loves the old language. So most of the terms he uses are, are 
they have their roots in old English, like so many things, but at this point they've become poeticisms, um, you know, a, a swarthy swain, you know, that kind of um, language. And so one of the challenges, and I have to say, I love Morris. I just find it delightful. And I love the, the challenge he took on. And he tries to retain every, he tries, it's an etymologic, it's an etymology. Let me see if I can get this right. Um, it's an etymological translation where he tries to pick modern English words that are descended from the old English words, like babugeth in old English means to um, kind of to surround, to, to encircle um, the waters, encircle the plains. Well, Morris sees that and he says, well, we have a word for that, bow. The word bow comes from babuga, the same root. And so, but of course, bow has nothing to do with that anymore. And that's one of the reasons why it's a bit of a funhouse mirror to read Morris because he's so dedicated to retaining some of the etymologies. The problem with etymologies is that just because a word descends from another word doesn't, they change their meanings over time and they mean something new and different. The word knight, like a knight in shining armor, doesn't mean knicht in Old English, which meant, you know, a boy servant. And so if, if you want to translate knicht, you wouldn't use the word knight, but Morris would. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's, that's fascinating because it, it, I, I do find it lovely to read out loud and almost impenetrable uh, <laughs> to understand. You kind of um, have to know the old English to understand Morris. It's true. Um, oh, you kind of think, oh, that's what he's doing. I see, you know, because yeah, it's, um, but it's bold and I love it. I love it for that. And I love, of course, the illustrations and the, the, the just the typography is beautiful. But by contrast, your translation, which is not just drawing on etymology, but is retaining actual Old English diction, is surprisingly easy to read. I mean, it really just comes across so clearly. I feel like I'm reading modern poetry, and, uh, and yet you're, you're teaching us this language. So it's, I find it incredibly successful. Um, let's turn to another passage that you've yeah. picked out. So I want to talk a little bit about the the Christianity in Beowulf, since that's been such a fraught and fascinating topic. And so a, a passage that takes that on directly is the passage, I won't read it all, but it starts around, um, let's see, oh, starts around 170, line 170 on page 34. And this is called the Christian excursus among scholars. And it's called this because it seems to be a little departure from the main text. Um, it's one of these passages that's almost explicitly Christian. There's nothing that's really explicitly Christian in Beowulf, um, which we can talk about too, but it's a moment where the the poet sort of becomes a preacher, sort of a fiery preacher, and talks about hell and idol worship, and it's a stern rebuke. And so some scholars, including Tolkien, thought that this was added by a later poet. The consensus today is that it, it isn't, that it is the Beowulf poet. And for, for stylistic reasons, an article I just published looks at um, other looks at other works, old English texts that um, that were influenced by Beowulf, and they cite this passage. So clearly within the old English period, this was considered part of the text. So I'll read a little bit of this. And what's the context here is Grendel is attacking Herat, and they, no one can do anything about him. They're powerless. They can't stop Grendel. And he comes at night, and he ravages the hall. And so what do you do? What would you do if Brenda was ravaging your hall? Well, you might worship, you might go to some, go to idols. You might backslide a little bit and you might go and maybe even make some sacrifices. You do what you got to do. If you look at the Old Testament, you'll see in moments of danger that, well, that's what happened. You'd go to Baal or you'd, you know, you'd do something that seemed expedient. And so some of the um, the Danes begin to make vows to idols. Um, and that the idea is they're making some kind of sacrifice. And the poet condemns this. So I'll read my translation for, you know, I'll do the Old English first. Well, actually, maybe this time we could flip it around, read yeah. your translation first, and then we'll kind of know what we're listening for. Gotcha. Um, Starting on line 175. Sometimes at Herg's heathen shrines, they pledged worship to idols. With their words, they implored the slayer of souls to provide them help against the people's distress. Such was their custom, the heathen's hope. In their hearts, they remembered hell. The Meato they did not know, the judge of deeds, or know of draked in God, or even how to praise the helm of heaven, the wild end of glory. Woe to him who in terrible affliction must thrust his soul into the fire's fathom and expect no comfort, no changing at all. Well, it will be for him who can seek the Drayton after his death day and ask for refuge in the Father's fathom. Okay, fathom means embrace, 
Um, right. You, you stretch out your arms and you embrace. And eventually the, the term for stretching out your arms becomes fathom, the depth measurement that's used by sailors. But in old English, it means embrace. All right. So I'll read the old English and I bet you can hear some of the same terms that I just read. And I'll just read that last little snippet. The whoa part where things get really fiery. Wabitham they shall through sleeve neath soul beshuvan in fire's fathom. Frovre ne winan wit yowendan. Well bitham they mote after death day a dichten seachan. Unto fadder fathom freo the wheelnan. So some of the same terms there, right? You could hear fathom, you maybe heard death day, you heard drichten or dryten. But the function words, those are all modern English in my translation. I've just retained some of the key terms. So what do we make of this? And what am I trying to do with, with this passage in particular? Well, one thing I've retained is along with fathom. And fathom's important because it repeats, right? It's the fire's fathom. So if you go to hell, you're going to be in the, you're going to be embraced by flames, buddy. It's going to be hot and it's going to never end. There's no changing at all. So you don't want to worship idols. You don't want to sacrifice them. Bad idea. Now, the Danes, the poet seems to be hedging and saying the Danes maybe didn't know better. But you, my reader, you know this is a no-no. And I'm going to remind you just how bad it is. But flip side here is the Father's fathom, the embrace of God, the refuge of heaven. And the poet's going to use a whole bunch of terms for God. He's got method here, the ordainer, the one who controls everything, the judge, the demand in Old English, the, the deemer of deeds who's going to judge they didn't know that judge. They didn't know exactly that they could intuit knowledge about this. And Beowulf and Hrothgar, they're pious monotheists. And they, but they didn't know explicitly revealed religion. They didn't know the Christian story. And so they didn't know the judge of deeds. And they, they didn't know of Triton God or an old English Drichten or how exactly to praise the helm of heavens, the wild end, the ruler of glory. So maybe we can, I think this passage is excusing the Danes to some extent. Um, they're not as culpable. But for Anglo-Saxons and the people, you know, and, and this wouldn't, I mean, even though they were Christian, they were surrounded by people that weren't Christian, that would make honor to idols. And this was a reminder that did not do that, that that was serious. So it's a theologically rich passage, one that's an occasion debate. And um, I think the richness, the interlace even of the terms for God is lost by color, you know, God, the ruler, the Lord, you're going to run out of, of terms pretty quick. Yeah. In your introduction, you call this a both-and approach to to culture, I guess, right, uh, and to to religion. That something can be both natural and supernatural. Uh, something can be both the work of the Christian God and the work of a more, a more impersonal supernatural force. And I I hear in the in the in the background there one of Barbara Newman's categories for how medieval culture would approach the sacred and, and the secular. Did you have that in mind, um, Barbara Newman's no, both and approach? I'm not familiar with, with that. Okay. Okay. But I think it's so I think it's really fascinating though that this both and theology or this both and cultural aesthetic of the Beowulf poet is we can't say that, oh, that's just a medieval thing. Um, because in fact, contemporary with the Beowulf poet, we have people who do not agree with a both-and approach to to this cultural integration. And in your introduction, you talk about Alcuin uh, echoing Tertullian, uh, what has Ingeld to do with Christ? And he says, the house is narrow. It cannot be both. The celestial king wishes to have nothing in common with lost and pagan kings whose names are rattled off, for the eternal king rules in heaven while the lost pagan king howls in hell. So in a way you could you could see the passage that you just that you just read as being a, a kind of an echo of Alcuin, but as you said, if you read it carefully, it's taking a more assimilationist approach to pagan culture than than Alcuin. Alcuin wants nothing to do with with right. with the pagan culture, right? We Can need you to just turn our say, back on this. Yep. Right. Yeah. So, so it seems that you're presenting a pretty distinctive a pretty distinctive disposition to non Christian culture in early England, and and where do you think that's coming from? 
in some ways, so so Alquin, what is what is Ingeld? So Ingeld was a, a hero. He's featured in Beowulf, actually, a, a violent, um, vengeful hero. And what Alquin's mad is that monastic people are listening instead of reading scriptures at meals, they're listening to the, you know they're having a great time listening to these heroic tales about Ingeld, you know, getting the guy. And and so Alquin, understandably, is like, man, don't do that. Don't listen. Read the scriptures. Ingle, that's that's not what we're vowed to. That's not the life we're called to. This life of, of vengeance and violence. And well, the Beowulf poet, what's his answer to this? I think in some ways he's trying to say, well, let's not do the baby bathwater thing here. Let's see if there's something redemptive or if there's elements of goodness in this tradition. And this tradition is us. This is our identity. These are our names. These are our lineages. These are our people. These are our stories. We don't have to cut it all away. We can keep it, and here's a path forward, and it's called Beowulf. It's called it's the story of Beowulf that has a deep theology interwoven with these earlier stories. In fact, I think that in some ways, the, the, I have a pet theory I'm working on right now that Be, that the inset stories in Beowulf are there in part to kind of sneak in, and maybe that's not the right verb, but to, to bring in and to baptize the entire tradition. A righteous hero like Beowulf can show that this can be done well, and we can read the other stories through the lens that Beowulf gives us, which is that there is righteous violence, that there is there are demonic forces, that there are bad things, and that we need the law enforcement of the world to put those things in order, because that's what what's God's call is for that. So there's a right way to approach the tradition, and there's also a wrong way to, to see it. Um, if we take the right things from it, then we're okay. And that's what Beowulf does. Yeah, I completely buy that. I mean, what it what the method would be doing then is it's calling on the the literary magic of scriptural allegory in order to integrate and transform an entire literary tradition. Uh, and you you know you call attention to to the fact that you know let's let's suppose there was this oral this oral tradition of of the Beowulf story prior to what we have in writing, the poet seems to go, the writer, the Beowulf poet seems to go out of his way to say that the hour at which Beowulf descends into the sea to go after Grendel's mother um, is the ninth hour, you know, the hour at which Christ dies on the cross. And then we get this little vignette looking at his thanes waiting on the shore. And it seems very clearly to be a Christological narrative reference. You know, he doesn't have to say Beowulf is like Christ. Um, Beowulf is a Christ figure because that's not the way it works. Beowulf is in allegorical correspondence to Christ, um, which, which means it's not just symbolic. It is a real historical correspondence. And through the correspondence, in this case of plot, of time, a real relation is established that transforms not only Beowulf's action, but also transforms Christ's action because it's this mutual, mutually effective uh, relationship in, in the allegory. And so by doing that, then it draws in all of the rest of that literary tradition, including like Siemund. So yeah, I, I completely buy that. But it's, you know, it's it's good to enter into, into Alequin's um, understanding, his critique, you know, it's understandable. And um and I think pondering that helps us understand what, what the Beowulf poet is really up to in his text, which is trying to say that there's, there's um, not only, it's not, he's not saying Beowulf isn't that bad, or these, these churches aren't that bad, they're okay. He's trying to say, no, there, there are bad things about it, but there's a good, we can detect the echoes and the correspondence or the allegorical um, signifiers, and these, can, these are telling the gospel too. And they're also transforming our understanding of the gospel, maybe deepening it, maybe enculturating it to some extent. But there's risk there, aren't there? There's always risk when these when when you have two systems that 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 come and touch and transform each other. And so does he pull it off? Well, I think largely he does, but it's there's tension, I think, in the text. Yeah, one one place where this is fascinating and it and it's retained in your translation is line eight fifty-two. And we're hearing about what happens to Grendel. So, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> Grendel breaks into Herat with Beowulf pretending to be asleep, waiting for him, and, and, and they grapple, and Beowulf tears off Grendel's arm, and Grendel runs away. And then, and then we get this kind of like omniscient narr- narrator telling us that, well, Grendel went away and, and died. And so your translation, line 850, could you read that at yeah. line 850? He hid away, doomed to die. 
dramless, when in the fen refuge he laid down his life, his heathen soul, there hell received him. Yeah, so that there hell received him. Uh, like, tell us about how that word hell is working there. Yeah, it's um. There's this that doubleness that both Anne approached earlier, where where you know Grendel's just a monster. He's an ogre. He's a troll, but he's also um, a demon. And here also this this mirror. So Grendel's mirror has this this pool that's deep, and um, and it's also imaged as hell. Um, so he, he both on one hand he just goes into this pool and he dies, but also there he's he's, he's a captive of hell. He's hell's halfling, and there hell takes him. It's got him. He's done. So that's the idea, I think, here. And hell as a as a space in a spiritual geography, your note says predates Christianity. And so it so it is, you know, this underworld that already exists, and yet here it's being coded Christian, partly through its through Grendel's association with Cain. Right. The poet tells us that Grendel is descended from from Cain. But so how so how do you read I mean the, the both and here is that it's a pagan underworld space or non-Christian underworld space, but then it's also integrated into a Christian theology of salvation? Yeah, that the, the pagans were were right, you know, about about uh-huh. how uh-huh. <laughs> they got that right. And um they got a lot right. They got more right than they got wrong. And um the word hell, of course, that's not a biblical, you know, the, it's a biblical concept, but the word is is Germanic. And so, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's strong, it's drawing these connections. It's, it's sort of pulling at your sleeve. The poet saying, look here, here's another place where we see that this tradition is, is right. Of co- and of course they're right because God was there too. God was working in the past. And remember these, most of these heroes are considered to be historical people that were believed to be, to have lived. And, and some of them in fact are historical people, um, historically attested people. So this isn't just legend. This isn't myth. This is the past. This is our past. And so he's saying these these people they, they God was there too God was ordaining and directing and approving and condemning there too and in a way if you if you think about that that's of course true right um, God's everywhere and he always is ordering and he has a plan and he is opposed to evil everywhere always but how that plays out is a mystery and he's exploring that mystery in a gentle not persistent not heavy-handed way but he's raising the question and he's kind of pointing at how that might play out that's what's fascinating. And it strikes me that here we have a kind of warrior culture vision of hell that's actually fairly close to the way that modern apologists sometimes talk about hell, where we don't want hell to be the space in which a wrathful God avenges himself on on the sinners. But we want it to be, we want it to be a kind of self-inflicted isolation. You know, so you've got Napoleon in C.S. Lewis's great divorce. 10,000 light years out, you know, away from the city center, pacing back and forth and says, I should have won Waterloo or something like that. Uh, <laughs> right. Or, that, yeah, that, that it's the prison of the self. It's, a, it's, locked, it's locked from the inside. So can you comment on that through, through the term dramless? In, um, he hid away, doomed to die, dramless. Yeah, so dream looks like the word dream, but it's pronounced a little bit differently, and it's it's etymologically linked to the word dream um, we have today. But in Old English, dram means joy, revelry. It's always communal. You don't dram alone. It's, it's not a verb. It's it, but it's a noun. But you don't you don't. It's not something you do alone. It always, and in fact, it often connotes music. So dram craft. The craft of dram is actually a word for music because when you get together, you make music, you rejoice. So that kind of communal festivity, the term is used for the saints in heaven in Old English um, religious writings. And Grendel is marked off as dramless. He doesn't have doesn't have this one key ingredient. And in in the poem, images the moments of dram rejoicing in the hall as a kind of heaven on earth. That's as good as it gets. You get together, and you're not just getting drunk, you are rejoicing in being together, in being with your Lord, in being with those that you you fight and die for, in reciting the stories that are true and old and beautiful. And it's so it's a picture of, of kind of a heavenly realm that the poet is doing. It's And that's why there's not drunkenness. There's, there's not orgy. There's not riot. It's orderly. It's ceremonial. It's elevated. It's beautiful. Um, but it's got dram. It's got noise and it's got merriment rejoicing. It's a very important concept in the poem. And Grendel, of course, doesn't get any of that. <laughs> so Grendel is, and Grendel's mother are the most, I think, famous images, and, and maybe partly because 
some people don't finish what they read when they're in school and they don't get to the end. But really, we've got a whole third of this poem that is takes place 50 years after the big showdown with Grendel and Grendel's mother. And it, to me, and I think probably to many readers, is the most mystifying part of the poem because it would seem that Beowulf does not end up triumphing. So how does your translation frame the way we're supposed to understand King Beowulf and his encounter with the dragon? Well, Beowulf has to die. He has to die, but he has to win. And I think that just riddled with, with Christian understanding of, of the crucifixion and of defeat and what it means to, to, to lose and also win. But it's also inherited from Germanic stories. Um, migration period stories tell tons of stories of defeats, of losses. Audiences had an endless appetite for watching heroes lose, which is interesting. Tolkien had this, this whole um, term for this, the Northern theory of courage, he called it, where you watch a hero faced with insurmountable odds and that's where you really find out what that person's made of. And so Beowulf has to, has to, and that's the ultimate sacrifice to die and to die kind of unflinching. So he's got to, he's got to die. He is also old, right? How long can you live? He's, he's an aged king. So he's going to go out fighting and he's going to face this dragon. And the dragon on some level is also the devil. Um, the book of revelation is in the background too. The dragon's going to be defeated, um, but it's also going to kill the protagonist. Um, so it's a victory and a loss. And it's, to me, the poem hits this pitch perfect. It seems to get it both, where Beowulf wins, he triumphs, but he also dies. What do you make of Wheelock's final speech uh, about Beowulf, where line on page 162, line 30, 76, often owing to the will of one man, many an earl must endure misery, as has happened to us. We could not persuade our beloved Theoden, the shepherd of the realm, with any rad, with any advice, not to approach the keeper of the gold, the dragon, to let him lie where he had long been and remain in his dwelling place until the world's end. I mean, he seems to imply Beowulf shouldn't have done this. Because he did it, we are now bereft of our Lord. And because of that, we are scattered to the winds. We are now weakened in the face of our enemies. And then you get what many readers take to be an incredibly bleak ending of the poem. Yeah. So how, how yeah. do you frame that, given what you've just said about, you know, the kind of Christ-like triumph of, of right. Beowulf? You know, let me start with the second part, Ryan, the, the bleakness. Oh, man, the desolation. Basically, on all sides of the Geet. So the Beowulf is a, is a Geet. He's a piece of people. Can you Geet. read that last, the desolation passage for us? Yeah. There's a couple little moments. There's the messenger's prophecy, which is a little before the end. That's pretty long. And it, it, it just says, it says that the Swedes in the north are going to get us, the Franks in the south. We're, get, we're screwed. That's what it says. And then at the end, there's the funeral of Beowulf. And there's a woman. So on page 164, and it's line uh, 3150. A Gietish woman also sang a sorrowful mourning yid for Beowulf, her hair bound up. Again and again, she said that she dreaded harsh invading armies, a multitude of slaughters, troop terrors, humiliations, and captivity. Heaven swallowed the smoke. So she's mourning this woman. You get this really powerful picture of a woman mourning at Beowulf's funeral. And she's, she's prophesying all the terrible things that are in store for her people, which probably came true. Historically speaking, the Gietish people were absorbed by the, by the Swedes. And within the context of the poem, too, they have enemies on all sides. So things don't look good. So did Beowulf make the wrong call? You know, should he should he have said, "I'm going to send in my men, or at least go in with an armed troop, and fight the dragon"? He made the right call. Beowulf made the right call because he was old. So you know, he he wouldn't live forever. He also, I think, we want we want a self sacrificing death. We don't want a, a peaceful deathbed scene of Beowulf, old Beowulf, just dying, like we can imagine King Hrothgar perhaps doing. We want him to die, giving his life for his people, sacrificing his life. And that language is all over the place in the text. And so, but we do have this one moment here where it seems to be that Wiglaf is censoring Beowulf for, seems to be criticizing Beowulf for his decision. I have to say the language is ambiguous here and the the manuscript is damaged at the end. So it's really hard to interpret this passage. But I would say that that what Wiglaf is expressing is, is just grief at the loss of Beowulf. So owing, often owing to the will of one man, many an earl must endure misery. My interpretation is that he's lamenting that they've lost Beowulf. That the misery they're enduring is that that um that Beowulf, their 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 shepherd, is gone. 
And then he goes on and sort of says, we, we tried to persuade him, don't do it, Beowulf, but he did it anyways. Well, I think that's only a test to Beowulf prowess, that he was willing to take the dragon on. And he, and he does destroy the dragon with Wheelock's help. So my, my reading of that, although it's a tough passage, is that in a way it's registering Wheelock's grief at the loss of his king. Um, Beowulf couldn't leave the dragon alone, like he's suggesting. That, I mean, the dragon was, was destroying the countryside. He had to take action. Now, he could have gone with an armed troop, but he still may have died. Um, so in a way, Beowulf did what he needed to do. Is it possible that the dismantling of the warrior band that had made Beowulf's community so wealthy and powerful, is it is it possible that that demise is somehow opens the way for a more modern, in this context, Christian cultural form, you know, where, there, where there's something, there's something about the warlord and the comitatus, the composition of society based around war and raiding and feuds that is inimical to Christianity. And to have that community scattered to the winds is almost you know, almost like uh, Pope Benedict the Sixteenth welcoming a, a a smaller, weakened, poorer Creative church. Minority. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I will say this: the poet underscores not just the Bay of Pope, but all the old English elegies that that glory passes, that it's transient. The transience of all of the great of all things is always on the lips of these poets. So, yeah, this is a great world, but a limited world. It's it's circumscribed and it's impermanent. And so, yeah, I think the idea would be seek what is permanent. You know, you don't have to reject this. This prefigures something good, but it's not the thing itself, is it? And something closer to the thing itself would be the, the monastics. This is a monk that wrote this, and he would have his comitatus. He would have his drichten, who would be the abbot. And that would maybe be more of a, a model as monks read and recited. It, you know, it wasn't just monks that listened to this, but um, but we know monks did enjoy this heroic poetry, um, thanks to Alcuin. But um, but yeah, seek a per- more permanent a system. Um, this prefigures something, but it's not the not the lasting thing itself. A lot is written about how Tolkien transformed Beowulf, bringing it into English literary canon and so on. Do you have a sense how did how did Beowulf transform Tolkien? It was a model for Tolkien, for his own fictions. Tolkien wanted to be the Beowulf poet. In some ways, he was. He took, as a Catholic, he took not explicitly Catholic stories, heroic stories, stories that are t- tragic dimensions and violence and vengeance, and saw value in them. That's the short answer, that he saw a model. But he also was transformed by the language he encountered in Beowulf. He just mines it for the... the he takes words and it's scattered all over Lord of the Rings, um, Old English words, terms... And he saw those as little the, the triggered ideas for him, concepts. You know, the word ent in Old English. So Tolkien steals the word ent. And in Old English, it's a it's a mysterious race of master builders that are not no longer extant in the world of Beowulf. So they they were they lifted lived long ago and they built these fabulous structures. But we know they live because we can look around and see these fabulous structures. Um, and so the entas, the ents were this um were these giant peoples that had vanished. Well, Tolkien takes that and he does something totally different. He makes them into giant people, but they're, they're trees too. Um, they're just tree people. And it's a cool concept. Um, so he took that and ran with it. Why do you think Tolkien never published his translation? I don't, think he, was, I don't think he was pleased with it. It evolved and he changed it. And it's not always, um, it, it was a work in progress. I don't think he was satisfied with it. What's more interesting about the translation is actually the commentary that accompanies the published translation today. It's it's really really insightful, and I I, I still liberally, liberally I, I quote Tolkien, but um, but I it informs my own commentary extensively. But yeah, I don't think many people reading it, it's prose for one thing. Tolkien's translation is just prose, not verse, and it isn't very satisfying to read. Well, your translation is incredibly satisfying. I commend it to all of our listeners. It's the Word Horde Beowulf by Peter Ramey, just out from Angelico Press. And it is, uh, you, you know, it has a very a, a brief but incredibly comprehensive introduction. Makes me want to, in fact, the next time I teach Beowulf, I'm 
you know, skipping Seamus Haney and, and we're there gonna, we go. <laughs> and Tolkien. I mean, I have been teaching it out of Tolkien's version for a while, but for other reasons, because we do some Tolkien and, and everything. But I, I'm going to, the, the introduction is the best, uh, you know, short introduction for, you know, undergraduate or reading uh, non-specialist purposes that I've come across. And you read it and it's really delightful. It's vivid and it uh, reads like excellent modern poetry. You're learning a bit of old English as you read it, uh, but very easily without thinking about it. And then the commentary is incredibly rich and is going to give you everything that you want as a, as a, a first time or a second time non-specialist reader of Beowulf. All of the, the kind of cultural otherness, uh, I think, does a great job of achieving that. And so I highly commend this. And for those who haven't read Beowulf and those who want to return to it, hopefully this conversation has kindled your interest. Um, so Peter Ramey, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.